0: Uh, Let's stand together, and uh, we are talking about the power of Christmas, and this is our uh, fifth installment, and uh, it is the final one, by the way. And um, we are looking at two texts, one from uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, and then Colossians chapter 1, Uh, sorry, it's not Colossians chapter 1, yes it is, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, it'll be on the screen, uh, but if you want to go there, I am reading the green and you are reading white, and this is John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh. Talking about Jesus being the Word, of course. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in him and on earth and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Beautiful. Father, again we pause to thank you especially for Jesus Christ. The extravagant, generous, Lord, exhibition of your grace, of your truth, of your mercy, of your love is in Jesus. Jesus. And for the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit that takes what you have accomplished in Christ and makes it possible and available in our lives. And so we pray today that you will give us a voice to speak, that you will give us ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to understand. And as we go out into our world, our communities, our neighborhoods, our families, where we work, and all the places where we travel and function, that you would teach us and help us to live out what it means to be Christ followers. That Christ may be glorified in tangible, practical ways. We ask this in his name and for his name's sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, we cannot focus on a series on the power of Christmas without focusing on the greatest power of all. The one power of Christmas that makes all the rest, love, joy, hope, and peace, possible. And of course, that is none other than Jesus Christ. After a lifetime of researching the impact of Jesus, the historian Philip Schaff said this He said, This Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all the philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of order and poet. And without writing a single line, He set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise that the whole army of great men and women of ancient and modern times. It's a pretty good statement, don't you think? One of the questions that the Bible asks and history is asked and is asked today is who is Jesus matter of fact Jesus asked the question himself in that famous passage in Matthew's gospel chapter 16 he said to his disciples who do you say that I am and who do people say that I am so who is Jesus well from a biblical perspective when we look at first Col- Col- when we look at colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 20 we see that Jesus is the center and the circumference of everything. Pascal said in Ponses, he wrote that Jesus is the object of all things, the center toward which all things tend. Whoever knows him knows the reason for everything. Colossians gives us six definitive statements. About Jesus. It says, first of all, that everything was created by him and for him. It says that he is the head of the church, that he is the beginning, that he is the firstborn from among the dead, that all things hold together in him, and that all things will be reconciled to and through him. This is how Paul sums up who Jesus is from a biblical perspective, but from a non-biblical perspective. We consider other sources when we reflect upon Jesus and his overall effect and influence in our world and in our culture and in history it was Yaroslav Pelikan who wrote through the centuries he said regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of western culture for almost 20 centuries Jesus who is he? Well, first of all, he is the person who has changed everything. Every year, at this time, at Christmas, the news magazines, Newsweek, Time, and others come out with their biannual issue that talks about Jesus. And of course, this year is no different, and you've probably seen them at chapters at the newsstand, or online, or at shoppers, wherever it is that you do your shopping, But one of those, Newsweek, wrote this. For Christians, Jesus is the hinge on which the door of history swings. The point at which eternity intersects with time. The Savior who redeems time by drawing all things to himself. Nearly a third of the world's population claims to be his followers. But by any secular standard, Jesus is also the dominant figure in Western culture. What we now think of as Western ideas, inventions, and values finds its source or inspiration in the religion that worships God in his name art and science, the self and society, politics and economics, marriage and the family, right and wrong, body and soul, have all been touched and often radically transformed by Christian influences. And at a time when our culture, our society, the we in the West are turning our backs on the one who has given us everything that we have and are. When we are turning our backs and we are shunning the very foundation of our Western culture, it is important for us to focus and to refocus on who Jesus Christ is. Which brings us to this, that Jesus is the person who split time. You know, B.C. and A.D., BC, of course, is the English phrase for before Christ. AD, ironically, is the Latin phrase that means anno domini, which means the year of our Lord or the year our Lord was born. When I was a kid, I thought AD, I always thought AD was, in fact, after Jesus' death. But, of course, it's not. In recent years, and this is a reflection on where the West is heading, in recent years, new terminology that is viewed by some as being more neutral and being more inclusive of non-Christian people is CE and BCE. So, for example, CE is before the common era or the current era, which we call before Christ or BC, and BCE is B. Uh, sorry, uh, BCE is before the common era or the current era. Now, either way, either way, Jesus is the person who split time. That around the world, that Jesus' significance is so great and his impact so powerful that he is the person who has split time in two. From CE to BCE or BC to AD. But the second thing is this. And we know this, that Jesus is incomparable. He is unmatched. He is unique. He is unparalleled. He is unrivaled. He is unequal. And he is beyond comparison. Someone put it this way. There never was another who caused all creation to be ransacked in pursuit of words appropriate to convey to human hearts and minds his glorious preeminence. There never was another who was a human child and also a divine son, who was wounded by Satan, who at the same time crushed Satan. Who was appointed the savior of humanity, yet was crucified by men. Who was judge of men, yet was led as a felon from one tribunal to another. There never was another who died and was buried and yet lived. Who saved others and himself he could not save. Who had no sin in him, yet all sin on him. Who was the king of glory, yet wore no crown but a crown of thorns. Who in the glory he had with God before the world was, had the angelic hails of heaven, and yet on earth gave himself to the murderous nails of men. There never was another who was the prince of life, and yet died on Calvary. Who was as old as his heavenly father and ages older than his earthly mother. There never was another. Who was the victim of a Roman cross and yet a victor of a Jewish grave. There never was another. Who poured all seas and all lakes and all rivers out of the crystal chalices of eternity. Yet on the cross said with a mouth, with a mouth hot like a parched desert that cries for rain, I thirst. On the one hand, there never was a person before or after him like Jesus. But on the other hand, Jesus' uniqueness has come under heavy scrutiny. Now, this does not surprise any of us, Because this is usual and this is not new throughout history. Various people in various ways have tried to discredit and to undermine who Jesus was and is. And the questions usually have to do with either Jesus' nature and history. So how do we interpret this? Either Jesus is God or he is not God. Jesus is the Christ of faith of the New Testament, of the Christian tradition is the same as the Jesus of history. But what did Jesus say about Jesus? What did Jesus say about himself? How did Jesus understand his own sense of Self-awareness. Macintosh said the self-consciousness of Jesus is the greatest fact of history. And so that brings us to this: Jesus self-understanding. The poet Tennyson said something great. He said that Jesus' personality is his greatest miracle. He said, try making up a character who says the things that men will die for, not just today, but hundreds of years from now. Easy, is it? If this is a forgery, maybe we should be worshiping the forger. But Jesus made some claims. And one of the the things that Jesus claimed is Jesus claimed that he was God. By using God's name, I am. Seven times in John's gospel, Jesus says, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. I am, I, am, um, I am greater than Abraham. And the list goes on. Not only did Jesus claim to be God, but Jesus also changed people's names. Something that the Jews believed only God could do. He claimed to be sinless. He forgave sins. He performed miracles. He raised the dead and rose from the dead himself. He accepted worship. He promised to send the Holy Spirit. He claimed to give eternal life. He foretold the future. And he said he would come at the end of time to judge the world. And he said that we will be judged by how we treated him. Montgomery, John Montgomery wrote these words. He says, what then, what then does a historian know about Jesus? He knows first and foremost that the New Testament documents can be relied upon to give an accurate portrait of him. And he knows that this portrait cannot be rationalized away by wishful thinking, philosophical presuppositionalism, or literary maneuvering. And that then brings us here to the authority, the authenticity, to the the credibility of the Bible. Now one of the things we need to know is this. That if people can undermine the credibility of the Bible, they can undermine the credibility of who Jesus is. And the moment they, under, they, under, they, they um, undermine who Jesus is, they undermine Christianity. And that's why it's so important for us to maintain the credibility of the Bible and to defend it. In the Old Testament, there are 574 verses that are direct, personal, messianic predictions. For example, 105 texts in 18 books talk about Jesus. 25 in Isaiah, 24 in Psalms, and 20 in the book of Zechariah. A catalog of biblical writers from Genesis to Malachi foretold Jesus' birth and his life and his ministry and his passion and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And this was hundreds and hundreds of years before Micah ever prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem. In your notes, I've given you a number of or a sample of some of those prophecies, But if you consider 574 prophecies directly that speak about the Messiah, we have to admit that it is a difficult list to fulfill for one person to do that. But this is something that Jesus pressed point on. Jesus said these words. In Luke's gospel, chapter 24, which is probably, mm, this is a big statement, Probably my most favorite text in the entire New Testament, Luke 24. The two are on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. Jesus comes up to them, and this is what the Bible tells us, that Jesus, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, with the 574 verses that talk about Jesus, he interpreted them all the scriptures, He he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. If I could go back in time, if there were a time machine, and I could go back in time, this is the place where I would go. So I could be with the two on the road to Emmaus and listen to Jesus articulate from the entire Old Testament, from Moses and the prophets, everything that the Old Testament says about who he is. But not just Jesus. Jesus' earlier, earliest disciples did the very same thing as Jesus did. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according with the Scriptures. And he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And this is of first importance. The defense of the credibility of the Bible. And for Jesus, from Jesus' earliest followers to millions and millions of believers down to us today, throughout the centuries... They saw that the Old Testament, the Law, and the Prophets, and Moses were the final and ultimate fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies in Jesus Christ. But here's something else. We too are witnesses. Our changed lives are testimonies of what Jesus is able to do and of what Jesus is capable of of Josh McDowell said it best he says if jesus was not god then he ob- he deserved an oscar i think we finally have to say that jesus enduring relevance is based on his historically proven ability to speak and to heal and empower the individual human condition He matters because of what he brought and what he still brings to ordinary human beings living their ordinary lives and coping with their surroundings. He promises wholeness for their lives. And in sharing our weaknesses, he gives us strength and imparts through his companionship a life that has the quality of eternity. And of course... All of this says that the person of Jesus Christ, of who Jesus is, is more thoroughly validated than any other ancient or historical figure that ever lived. So on the one hand, Jesus is constantly, and even today, being denied and insulted and blasphemed. But on the other hand, he is strangely immune It's a ridicule. He rises and he rises and he rises again and again and again. I don't know who wrote this, but I found this a couple of weeks ago. And they said, the fact that indeed there is a real historical Jesus. Biblical Christianity is tied to real history. Christianity affirms crucial events that actually happened objectively in the fullness of time. If dehistoricized, is that a word? Christianity is destroyed. And then finally there is this. We are in the process of celebrating the birth of Jesus. It is, by the way, the sixth day of Christmas. Christmas doesn't end, actually, until the 12 days are through, which is actually next Sunday, uh, is actually January 6th is the last day of Christmas. We are still in the Advent season. And so we celebrate the birth of Jesus, what we call the first Advent. But the celebration and the observing of the first Advent anticipates a second Advent. That Jesus Christ is coming again. And somebody said this. The first time he came veiled in the form of a child. But the next time he comes, he will be unveiled and it will be abundantly clear to all just who he is. The first time he came, a star marked his arrival. The next time he comes, heaven will roll up like a scroll, and all the stars will fall out of the sky, and he will be the light. The first time he came, the magi, the wise man, brought gifts, but the next time he comes, he will bring gifts, and his reward will be with him. The first time he came, there was no room for him, but the next time he comes, the whole world will not be able to contain his glory. The first time he came, only a few welcomed him. But the next time he comes, every eye will see him. The first time he came as a baby. But when he comes again, he will come crowned king of kings and lord of lords, the sovereign king of all heaven and all earth. And John wrote these words. And there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and sitting on it, Is called the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And his eyes are like flame, like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself, and he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's coming again, and he is going to set everything right. But there are some things that some people say better than others. I want you to watch and listen to this video.
1: The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews, he's the king of Israel, he's the king of righteousness, he's the king of the ages, he's the king of heaven, he's the king of glory, he's the king of kings, and he's the lord of lords. That's my king. I I wonder, do you know him? (laughs) My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He rewards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a well-spring of wisdom. He's a dull way of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory.
0: Some people just say it better than others. I was reading one of my favorite poets, Mary Oliver, and she was telling the story in her, one of her poems. It's called Maybe. And she's telling the story about where Jesus is in the boats, in the boat and uh, with the disciples, and he's asleep, and the storm breaks out. You know what I'm talking about, right? And they're scared out of their mind. A bunch of seasoned boat people. And fishermen are scared of the mind. You know it must be scary. And Oliver says, and Jesus stood up and the sea lay down. And when he stands up in your life and my life, the seas lay down. That's who he is. And that's the Jesus we serve. And that's the Jesus of the Bible. Let me just finish with this. This past Christmas, I've been, I've been drawn to um, G.K. Chesterton, Gerald, um, Gilbert Keith Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, again. And um, Chesterton was a, a journalist uh, in England a long time ago, quite famous, and he uh, was an atheist. And um, he eventually uh, came to faith in Christ, and it's a great story. But he says this. At the end of his book, he writes this, he says, he says, I have another far more solid and central ground for submitting to Christianity as a faith. And he says, it's this, that the Christian church, in its practical relation to my soul, has a living teacher, not a dead one. And then he says this, he says, Plato has told us the truth, but Plato is dead. Shakespeare has startled us with an image, but Shakespeare will not startle us anymore. But Jesus will. Because we have a living teacher, not a dead one. And friends, I tell you, beyond everything else, this is the truth. Our Savior is alive. And he has spoken to me and you yesterday. And you can look forward to the fact that he's going to speak to you tomorrow and the next day. Because the church has a living teacher, not a dead one. And when he stands up, see, lay
1: down.